Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. A couple of years ago, I picked up a book on change work with the subtitle The No-Holds-Barred Interventions of a Contrarian Change Artist. And I thought to myself, what on earth is this? And as I turn the book over, I see a quote from the co-founder of NLP, John Grinder, saying, this is the stuff of genius. And speaking to you as someone who's happy to challenge certain traditional approaches to therapy, I was hooked immediately, and so began my journey into the rabbit hole of provocative hypnosis. So it's tremendously exciting for me today to be joined by the author and provocative hypnotist, Jorgen Rasmussen. Welcome, Jorgen. Thank you, Howard. Well, jumping straight in, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got started. Well, I, uh, I see clients pretty much all day. That's what I do. And I've done it for uh, two decades at this point. And uh, I got started through plain curiosity and playfulness. I uh, uh, have been a, a almost lifelong martial artist. I, I used to compete. Um, uh, I taught uh, very practical self-defense for a long, long time. And, and I was always looking for the mental edge. You know, as, as a self-defense instructor, I kind of realized that what we're attempting to do is to teach people physical solutions to very emotional uh, situations. So I was always looking for the mental edge. And uh, even at age 13, I started to meditate and, and study sports psychology. And I would, I, I would test it in competitions. Um, and back in the mid-90s, I started hearing about NLP and Tony Robbins and you know how you could cure a phobia, and and I said I said should say change a phobia in, in thirty minutes, hmm. um, and I just got curious, and I, I started reading books like Unlimited Power and Awaken the Giant Within and that type of stuff, and and I think it was nineteen ninety seven I went to my first NLP course uh, here in Norway, and got hooked. Uh, a new new world opened up, and I've always been a big reader, so I, I immediately started reading anything I could find my hands on. And and uh, one of the things that really hit me was this idea of an impossibles practice. That and reading of all the 
the crazy stories of Banner and Grinder and, you know, transformations and frogs into princes and, and Ericsson's literature. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, is this stuff really possible? You know, c- could I do this? Are human beings so weird? Where do they find all these crazy weird people? <laughs> so I started advertising an impossible practice pretty much right off the bat with a no change, no pay policy. And uh, did that for eight years. Uh, and then changed up my, my 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 practice a little bit, but uh, it it turned into a passion and and a way for me to uh, to to never feel that I really had a job, a, a way for me to do what I really love to do and you know what would have done anyways. Um, and here's a funny thing, when, when I met Grinder, you know John Grinder, many years later, and we started talking and. I told him some case stories, and he was the one who encouraged me to, to, to write that book that you mentioned. And he said, you know, where do you find all those weird people? <laughs> I said, well, that, that's exactly what I thought when I read Frogs and Princess back in the day. Like, where do you find all these crazy people? Well, not crazy people, but, but weird people. Hmm. So that was kind of coming full circle. It's just it's so cool, and there's there's a few things that I'd love to talk to you more about, um, not just about the impossible's practice, but even working on a, a no change, no pay kind of protocol. How did how did that work out for you, and why did you end up changing from that? Well, I I discovered uh, that it's it's of course a a great way to uh, to go broke. Um, <laughs> it's uh, th- there are some strong pros and cons to to doing it. Uh, one pro is that it's it's relatively easy to get people in the door with that offer. Uh, very few people do it. So if, if you're looking for a kind of, you know, unique selling position or, or positioning angle, or if you're new, it can be a good way to, uh, to just get clients in the door. Uh, another pro is, you know, if, if you don't help someone, you don't eat, essentially, you're probably more likely to be motivated to do whatever it takes. I mean, some of my stunts were, well, they, they were inspired by passion and curiosity anyways, you know, just, but, but some of them, you know, the, the, the lengths I was willing to go to to help them, if I'm completely honest, were probably partly inspired by, okay, I've tried everything I know to do. I really don't want to give them this money back. Well, fuck it, you know. Let's try this. I have this crazy idea. And then, so it, it, it kind of inspires that creativity. At least it, it did in me. The, uh, the downside of it is, as one client one day told me, he said, well, this is completely risk-free because I either get my, my change or I get my money back. And something didn't quite sit right with me, as in the, the, the person is not really engaging uh, there, the, there's something about that no change, no pay policy that that sometimes attracts clients that aren't really engaged. You know, people who are looking. But here's something else too. One of my uh, kind of discoveries, and it's not my original discovery. I got it from both Greek philosophers and the Buddha and Albert Ellis. But as in discovering it for myself, is that one of the main you know, uh, thinking errors that we people do is that we, we, we turn preferences and goals and wants into these masturbatory demands. You know, I must succeed and I need a guarantee and you know, I need to be approved of and, you know, all that sorts of nonsense. And, and 
you know, increasingly during my change work career, I, I would help people challenge those notions because I, I would see that when when people no longer thought that way and when people realized, you know, the the flaw in, in, in those beliefs, uh, it was so very helpful. So promising this guarantee up front was really incongruent with that. Mm. That and finally... Uh, <clears throat> And this, you know, pretty much every summer or winter or any vacation, you know, some former client would call and and suddenly say it didn't work as if there is an it at play uh, demanding money. And I would, of course, often suspect that, you know, it's really convenient timing. Person's just broke. You know, where do I get where do I get it quick? Where can I get quick money? Ah, yeah. From that no change, no pay guy. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that I'm still scared. And um, and it just happens to be Christmas time. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, I saw that on a bit too many occasions to go, you know what? I don't think this is completely, uh, completely a coincidence. So it was extremely, uh, I'm very happy with those eight years. I, mm. I, I learned a ton and in 2006, I, I stopped doing it. There's also, a, there's also an ethical thing here, which I think, especially if you're new or, or because one kind of ethical issue is, you know, how do you charge money for doing stuff that you don't really know that you can do yet? You know, how do you, if you don't really have the competency or if you're working in, in areas that you really, you know, I really don't have any idea if we're able to change this. Hmm. And if you have that concern, then offering up, okay, no change, no pay, it can be a very ethical way of attempting to to work with stuff that in theory, uh, society and so-called experts have kind of collectively decided that that's not possible. And and, and this, I think, is, is, you know, a lot of people in the change industry, you know, work with only safe issues. There's this notion of you know, work inside your scope of practice and evidence-based. And my attitude was always, no, screw that. Let's work as far outside of any scope of practice as possible because that's how you learn stuff. That's how you pioneer stuff. That's <clears throat> that's how you make discoveries by by doing stuff that people aren't doing and, and by challenging the, challenging the conventions. And I suspect if, if you're able to work with a no-change, no-pay protocol for eight years, under that then it, it feels okay to do that it's quite freeing to yes. work to to work in that way because hey guess what i'm not i'm not over promising i'm not uh, confined by you know hey guess what i have to do just the stuff that i know works because they're paying me by the hour for example yeah. and, and 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 imagine you know someone comes to you and says look i have i have cancer uh i have heard about read about people having spontaneous remissions or not so spontaneous remissions uh, I'm into the power of the mind. Will you help me? You know, on 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 the one hand, you know, I I think it would be very unethical to say, yeah, sure, we can do that, no problem. <laughs> you know, as in as in uh, promising or 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 claiming that it's very likely that you can help someone accomplish something like that. Mm. There is a, and a lot of people criticize people who do that, and and. <clears throat> at least to a large extent, rightly so. 
But but I also think it's equally a, a mistake to say, no, can't help you. We, we might be able to do work with the pain a little bit, but no, no such thing is possible. Uh, we're sticking evidence-based here. You know, we're rational people. Because mm. I know those are exactly the type of challenges that you, you should take up. You know, working th those types of cases where you don't really have a, a good roadmap is exciting as hell. And in a case like that, uh, a more no change, no pay policy is, is uh, I think, very appropriate. So, Jürgen, how would you deal with that? that? Let's say you get an inquiry or a call or someone says, hey, guess what? There's this issue that I want some help with. And you don't know whether it is possible. How do you frame your interactions or how you're going to work with them? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack a big uh, a big step. So, mm. so for me these days, for most of the issues that I see people for, I see them twice. Mm -hmm. So most clients for most issues, I, I see twice. And not always, you know, sometimes we need to do some follow-up, you know, sometimes we're not successful, but... But, but for the most part, if I see people for fears or anger issues or, or, or anything kind of that I've helped people with a million times, uh, we, we do two sessions. And I, you know, I, I have rates where, where people pay, pay me. And uh, sometimes if, if I get a client who, who I just don't connect with, who, who uh, I choose not to work further with, I'll just give them their money back for that first session without them having asked for it. Mm -hmm. uh, it it's kind of a positive bonus in, in, instead of something that people are, are expecting. Um, if people, but if we work on, if we work on something that's really out of the box, a lot of my work has been, uh, well, in, in the past, I used to do no change, no pay. Uh, these days, sometimes I'll either do it for free if, if it's really outside the box, um, or I'll, 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 ne I'll negotiate some sort of deal with it. I, I don't really have a, a fixed format hmm. for it, you know, but I, I, I don't want to be one of those guys who, if someone's dying, for, you know, from ALS or some horrific disease and, and, and they just squandered away their, their savings by you know, attempting all these different therapist therapy protocols, whether they're so-called alternative or, or, or conventional, and, and, and now the family's broke. I, I, I don't want to contribute to that. That's, sure. that's not my, you know, that, that, that's not my, my thing in life, to, 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 to put it that way. I but I, I, I wouldn't steer away, steer away from the challenge either. So that's how, in many of those cases, I've done a lot of free work. So what what would you? I think my question really is is I'd be curious to know what you say to them, not necessarily even around the charging structure, but you know, I I, I guess you want to keep the options open that it's possible that there could be some benefit of of working together. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty read up, you know, on on spontaneous remissions and, and stuff like that. So I have a lot of stories to tell about how pretty much anything is possible. So I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, you know, look, people have overcome this. There, there are plenty of cases in medical literature that, that documents that people have beaten the odds, that, that people have recovered, had 
both spontaneous and, and not so spontaneous remissions of, of various sorts. Um, so, and, and I usually tell them, look, we, we've been brought up with this mind-body split where we have learned to think of things in terms of physical and psychological as if those are two distinct separate things. They're not. We, we made it up. It's one integrated system. You know, your internal life, how you think, how you feel, uh, the, the quality of, a rela of your relationships, uh, whether you feel that you have a meaningful life. Th these things influence your hormonal production, your, your, immune, your, your immune responses. So when working with an issue like this, there are many doors to swing open, whether it's conventional, whether it's through nutri nutrition. Another door to swing open that, that is worth exploring to the max is the so-called psychological emotional door. Yeah. Would you like to really swing that open and see what we can do? And what we can do may be that you completely recover. That might be the difference that makes the difference. It, it might be that we make improvements. It might be that, that you're not able to to affect the disease in and of itself, but that you experience less pain and more of a meaningful life. And in some cases, you know, we don't resonate at all. Is that a door you want to really explore and swing open? Yep. So it, it's, it's, it's a matter of, of kind of allowing for change, allowing for miracles. Uh, I don't like to use the word miracles, but, but, but to, to really honor and acknowledge that people often have the capacity to do stuff that conventional thinking just doesn't allow for. So, so really honoring that and opening the door for that, and at the same time, not being a nut or or a fraud or 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 someone who promises something that we really have no no basis for promising. Yeah. No, I think that's. I'm, I really appreciate you uh, answering so candidly. I think that was a really, yeah, uh, really interesting. Uh, but but I'm I'm with you, and and that's it's it's a tricky terrain to navigate. Mm. And and more than there being, there, there there's this economist philosopher uh, by the name of Thomas Sowell, who who's who's often said something uh, I, I like, and he he usually makes the point that you know. There, there, there often aren't any uh, utopian solutions to anything. It's, it's more a, a matter of, of functional trade-offs. I often like that word, you know, functional trade-offs. You find, you find some, sort of, some sort of balance between, between opening the door for change and and, and kind of priming them and creating a context where change is as likely as possible. And at the same time, you, you, you balance it with a, a kind of responsible, ethical, realistic framework. And, and you, you have to find some sort of functional framework there so that whatever the results are, you know, it, it supports both. And yeah. you can still look yourself in the mirror and, and the client in the eyes afterwards and say, you know, no matter the outcome and say, you know, we, we did something good here. Or we, we made a good attempt. I, I think everyone, too, should or everyone should. You know, I, I'm not religious. I, I don't believe in shoulds. So I'll, 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 I'll put shoulds in quotation marks. You know, so, so whenever I say stuff, there, there, it's no no attempt at commandments. You know, when I 
But I think it would be a damn good idea if we all did experiments and tried to do stuff that or committed to do stuff that kind of conventional wisdom and society has told us, you know, you can't do that. That's not possible. So, for example, and I got quite a bit of pushback on this uh, a few years ago. I, a, a person called me from um, from Russia and said, I'm gay and I'd really like to be straight. You know, I know you do this no change, no pay thing. As someone in the States told me about you. Uh, can I come see you? Hmm. And of course, people who I've told this story have been up for grabs and said, how can you do this? This is so unethical. You should teach him to accept that he's gay. There's nothing wrong with being gay. You know, go for acceptance. And and I said, look, personally, I'm as I'm about as liberal or as much as a liberalist that you can you you can be. I, I have no issues with gay marriage or people being gay or so it's it's not an it's it's not a button to me in any way sense or form. I and I said I also agree that that in likelihood you know the 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 healthy thing to do would be to just accept it. On the other hand, he lives in Russia, which is a very different environment compared to, for example, Norway where stuff is very liberal on those types of issues. Mm. And uh, who am I to sit here in Norway and say, you as a gay person have to accept that uh, and live like that because I think that you should. And that sounds really nice as an ideological position to me. And I get to promote myself as a good fella, you know, who... So, So I said to him, sure. If, if if you want to make that attempt, let's do it. So so he came in, you know, we, we, did, we did quite a bit of hypnotic work, um, which was really interesting to do. Now, he's, he, he had a, a, a slight bisexual thing going on. And what he reported after the session was he, he's still as gay as ever. Like, like, it did not change his sexual orientation, the work that we did. Uh, but he did report that he thinks that he's more attracted to, to, to women, that, that that there was a, a amplification of, of that side, too. So more of a bisexual. That was his that was his report. Anyways, I, I gave him his money back. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm still happy to have done the experiment. There, there's there, there's a, a arrogance that I think is is quite outrageous in. Uh, I like the example of Martin Seligman, the, the positive psychology guy, who in all seriousness has written this book titled What You Can Change and What You Can't. And it's it's not a joke. You know, it's he, he actually, and, and if you think about it, what he's doing, essentially saying, look, here's where I have functional solutions. You know, this is where me and my colleagues have a good roadmap to navigate that would be very honest and, and a very good thing to do but but instead he, he then says well this is you know what i and my colleagues know how to do well of course if, if it was possible we would be doing it you know we're the smart guys we're the experts after all so the fact that we don't know how to do it means it's not humanly possible uh-huh. no one else can do it 
uh, within or outside of this particular field, and no one will ever be able to do it either. It's it's a limitation for all time, and 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 a lot of people think that you know this this is good framing, this is evidence based, hmm. but 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 I but I think it's unethical because it if you go back to that functional trade off, it totally does not honor the fact that people can can sometimes do stuff that conventional thinking doesn't allow for. You know, sometimes people can do stuff that's completely at odds with the theories or the expectations or or the perceived common knowledge. And and I think in your framing, you have to in some way allow for that or, or, or create a, a context that that maximizes those chances. I, I agree wholeheartedly. It reminds me when I was at school, Jorgen, uh, in science, they used to teach us facts about the body and in biology. Yeah. This is this is how it works. And uh, when we got to A level, I remember having a, a teacher and he, he didn't like to ever say this is how it works. He would always say, look, just to let you know, this is the current thinking of how we think it is but it's all just a theory because he liked the idea that we would all go away as students with a growth mindset with an inquisitive mind going well but maybe it's not rather than just locking everything down going well this is this is it done yeah that's just a fact so you stop exploring that that to me sounds like a, a a true scientist and and what a relief you know to to have a teacher like that to 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 be astute enough to Right. To, to be able to say, okay, this is how it looks presently. This is, the, the, these are our current findings, mm-hmm. and it might change. <laughs> just, just, just to throw that in there. Absolutely. Is... I probably shouldn't mention that I failed biology, should I? Well, you know, I, I did too. So we're, we're in good company. So if, if anybody listens to this and is kind of young and goes, oh, I failed biology. I can't really do this. Ah, we did. We're doing okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I'm going to take you back to one of the answers you gave on the rapid fire round was about mental illness. Yes. And indeed, you know, you have a whole section in your in, in the first book you wrote on provocative hypnosis on called the myth of mental illness. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, uh, whether because there may be people tuning in that haven't heard you before and haven't read the book, if you could elaborate a little more. Yeah, well, you know, Words are are understood in terms of of frames, and and, and language is, of course, a metaphor for experience. And uh, how we we frame things, you know, so dramatically often influences how we think and and, and how people respond. You know, people respond very often in a way that makes sense in terms of the the, the way we frame things. So, so... uh, and I remember, I, I don't quite have the, the numbers, but I remember uh, one type of experiment where people were asked to propose solutions to the problem of crime in, in a city. Mm-hmm. And, and um, when, when the people who asked the question, you know, presented it as, as a, a virus or, or like, like a sort of uh, unfortunate disease, uh, people were way more lenient in, in terms of solutions. And, and when people presented it as, as something that was intentional, uh, 
the, the responses were very different. So what, what I noticed when, when I started seeing clients was, you know, psychiatry is very big and strong in Norway. Hmm. And people would say, I, I have a mental illness. You know, I'm, I'm sick. I, I have a disease. And I would say, well, how do you know you have a mental illness? Well, my doctor told me. Yeah, but, but how do you know? How does he know? Well, he says I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. And I would get that story so many times. I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. And I would ask, well, what type of test did you take? Well, no test. Okay, so he so he interviewed you and you described these behaviors and these ways of thinking. And then based upon that, he concluded that you have a, have a chemical imbalance in your brain. Well, yes, if you put it that way, yeah, yeah, that's that's what happened. And I was like, this is weird. What on earth is this? <laughs> and uh, I, I started researching, you know, reading up on psychiatry and psychiatric history and, you know, and, and of course, discovered that there is no test anywhere to confirm or disconfirm a so-called chemical imbalance in the brain. That what happens is that people go to a medical doctor or a psychiatrist and they talk about unwanted behaviors that either they themselves don't want unwanted behaviors and thoughts and feelings or unwanted as in people around think it's it's a bother. Hmm. And, you know, that's that's fine. You know, you could go in and say, you know, I, I find myself behaving in stupid ways or or, you know, I, I have these feelings or I have these compulsions or whatever. But but to then claim that this means that you're sick or ill or there's a, somehow a chemical imbalance in your brain that you need drugs to medicate and to correct the imbalance without any proof, without any proof whatsoever. I think this is one of the most cruel uh, scams um, that that people are subjected to. It's 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 really a, a complete lack of ethics, and I've I've always been kind of surprised by well, not really surprised, but you know, many of these skeptics, you know, professional skeptics, who, mm -hmm. you know, over the time, I, over time, I've kind of concluded that many of them are are. Uh, establishment foot soldiers you know both politically and in other ways they they they, they kind of protect the establishment and and they're, they're so down on you know psychics and homeopaths and I, I don't blame them you know I, I really have no but but if you look at look who really has power who really influences lives well forensic psychiatry does you know coercion based psychiatry you know these diagnoses these and for some reason, they, they never expose the scam. They're willing to, you know, even people in, in, in the so-called psychotherapy and hypnotherapy communities who talk about evidence-based are more than willing to talk about mental illness and treatment and, 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 and kind of encourage the... So what I think we, we really should acknowledge is that the whole treatment industry... Is, is selling a metaphorical diagnosis as if it was a quote-unquote real diagnosis. I'll give you an example. Uh, Thomas Saws, a very famous psychiatrist who was, I think, the world-leading critic of psychiatry, he, he, he made that point about uh, metaphorical diagnosis, and he said, look, if I go into a bar 
and I ask the bartender for a screwdriver, you know, he knows that I'm not asking for a working tool. The, the last thing he would do would, would be to, to give me an actual screwdriver. Hmm. He knows that I'm asking for something entirely different. There, there's this drink with, I don't know, is it vodka and orange juice and so, some sort of, you know, it, screwdriver is a metaphor. And, and all these mental illness diagnoses, as far as I know, are, are metaphorical diagnoses. If, if people had, if people had, or slash, it was proven that there was some sort of brain pathology that was driving their, their thinking and symptoms, they would have had a neurological diagnosis, you know, as in Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or a brain tumor or something like that. But the fact that they don't and that they're sold as metaphorical chemical illness diagnosis means that, that A, that there, there's no test available or, or being done. And, of course, there might still be something, quote-unquote, wrong with their brains, you know, but it, it's just that there's really no evidence for it. And uh, when these clients would come in and talk about managing their depression and managing this and dealing with that my stance is look, there's just thinking anyways i mean they're relating to life or relating to experiences in a depressive way mm -hmm. uh that's the in quotation marks illness there's uh and i i discovered you know a a, a strong effect in my clients in in completely bypassing that entire framework and when i noticed that people believed in that framework to really help them deconstruct it and, and to really see that that th this really is nonsense so i i frame what i do as training and thought experiments essentially you know i may be asking you questions i'm going to be guiding you through these various thought experiments where you're going to make discoveries you're going to have felt insights you're, you're going to discover how your own experience kind of gets constructed you, you you'll discover how you can tweak and change your own experience and that's what we're doing and it's 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 so much more a, a healthy dynamic frame that that uh presupposes and and kind of primes a engaged client who's a part of the process who's doing the changes versus this victim of something hmm. that is here to be cured or be changed by some magical technique or some therapist who who will impose something on him so that's that's my rant <laughs> no no it's, it's fascinating could could you give me uh, or our listeners um an example perhaps of someone who came in with and if you could see me i'm doing my inverted commas as i say mental illness yeah um and you worked with them and it, it, it was it was successful. You got a, a a nice result. It moved in the right direction, and they and they they bought into this idea that hey, guess what? It's it, it's not a mental illness. Well, I I would say most of my clients day by day. Uh, you know, back in the day, you only had a handful of diagnoses. You know, mm -hmm. today you have hundreds, literally. I mean, I mean, any of us, if you look at the DSM. Any of us could qualify for, 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 for a bunch of different diagnoses and, and, and be, be called mental illness. Have you heard about the Rosenhan experiments? 
th this psychologist back in the 70s who was kind of skeptical of, of the, the diagnosis. So he took himself, and I believe it was eight, eight or nine students, eight or nine, nine college students who had no history of, in quotation marks, mental illness or anything like that. And they all went to different uh, psychiatric hospitals, and they all did the same thing. They, they, they all went to the door and said, I have this voice in my head that just says thump. But, so that, that's all they did because they, they wanted to make sure that, that we're all doing exactly the same thing at different psychiatric hospitals. Now, all of them were given a, a uh, severe diagnosis. I think seven or eight got a schizophrenia diagnosis and one of them got a bipolar diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And almost all of them had, had a really hard time getting back out. It took, I, I think it took six weeks or something for Rosenham and himself to get out of the psychiatric hospital. And, and, and he had alerted the media, you know, uh, of this beforehand. The media is so often a kind of establishment protector that won't really challenge psychiatry. But, but for some reason, it went along with this. And... Uh, and when they got out, it was quite a scandal, you know, quite a, mm. uh, quite a, uh, a uh, blow to, to psychiatry. And, of course, psychiatry shot back and said, no, you know, we, we know who's mentally ill or not, you know. And, 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 and Rosenhan lied to them and said, well, I've, I've sent you a bunch of people. Let's see if you're able to spot the difference between the fakes and the, the real mental of course, I don't like this part of it because it presupposes that some of it is, is real. But but anyways, he did that, and I can't remember the numbers out of my head, but, but quite a few people were, were released from these various psychiatric uh, uh, institutions in, in the next few weeks. And then Rosenhan, you know, exploded the bomb and said, I lied. I didn't actually send anyone, which <laughs> was this huge blow against psychiatry. And, you know, at the time, you, you had that wonderful movie with Jack Nicholson, one who flew over the cuckoo's mm. nest. Uh, so, and, and you also had psychiatrists at the time kind of struggling for their survival of their profession because insurance companies would say, you know, why should we pay for your services? Because uh, there, there was a very dominance of, of psychoanalytic thinking. It was still mental illness. But it was based in unconscious repressed conflicts and, and stuff like that, and and you had psychologists and social workers, and so so psychiatrists kind of needed to rebrand their their positioning in the marketplace, yeah. and of course of course that they had no evidence of any disease as in brain pathology for 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 any of their their diagnosis. So what they did. And this happened around 1980. They 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 completely went on the offensive with this huge marketing campaign of you know we're medical doctors. These are these are chemical imbalances in the brain with good help from pharmaceutical companies. And these are chemicals imbalances in the brain in the same way that that diabetes and cancer are diseases. You know depression is a disease. And in cooperation with with uh, drug companies, they've been able to pretty much unchallenged for decades sell this this idea, which has resulted in in an epidemic of diagnosis and, and drug use and and in a population 
that that completely believes in this fiction that that has completely you know if if you go out there and you say look there's really no scientific basis for any of these diagnoses it's all made up people look at you as if you're talking about reptiles or Mm-hmm. Or, or that, that you're some sort of crazy conspiracy theorist, because it, it, it couldn't be that bad. You know, these are responsible people. Maybe there's some overselling of medications. Maybe there's this, but <clears throat> but it's 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 so hard for people to conceive of that. No, the whole thing is is essentially a lie. Say, but but of course these days, you know, the the meta studies are have been coming back. You, you have people like Irving Kirsch who, who wrote a really good book on on the emperor's new drugs, kind of exposing antidepressants for for, for what they are and mm. going as far as you can scientifically to, to pretty much bunk the whole chemical imbalance theory. So in, in my opinion and in my experience, I think that one of the worst things that have happened to us collectively in the last few decades is that psychiatry has gotten so big, and, and not just the drugs, but the whole mindset, the, the, the whole victim mindset, the whole disease mindset, the whole the whole idea that, that we're fundamentally broken and that there's something wrong with us, and, and if you feel bad, there, 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 there's a, you're supposed to get treatment, you know, you're, you're a patient. I, I think this whole mindset both culturally, collectively, and individually, is is creating a society and 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 a psychology that's that's we're way worse off. Yeah, I would argue. I think I do agree. I think it's, it's disempowering, and, very much, and and takes people into a mindset of being passive to their own yeah. issues. You know, which I, I think a lot of people, you know, I see people and that they come in and I think part of the issue is when they, they come in and they say, you know, wave your magic wand and fix me. Yep. Kind of indicates that that's what they're kind of used to. That's what they yep. think that, that life is, that, you know, they sit back and other people do stuff or life happens to them rather than having some neurological engagement in creating their own destiny. And I hear it a lot at New Year. You know, I hear people go, they go, I wonder what this year will bring me as though the year is going to knock on their door with a gift basket of experiences that's going to happen over the next year. Uh, And there's this real passivity. And I I think it kind of what you're what you're talking about here kind of plays right into that. Yeah, it's, you know, let's say you have a kid who is not doing well in school or is, is, you know, a bit impulsive and and things aren't quite working out you know there's one thing to say look uh your son or daughter or whatever you know the way he's behaving isn't quite working well at the moment uh he's a bit impulsive you know what do we do with that you know i'm not saying that that there aren't huge challenges in a sense but but the whole premise seems to be look if you don't quite fit into school there's clearly something wrong with you there's got to be something wrong with your brain there's this chemical imbalance in there, and and it's 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 such a convenient alibi for everyone involved, you know. The the teacher instead of looking at well, you know, could I reach this kid differently, or or might we get to know this person a bit, or or see what's going on you know, in this person's life? Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's a brain disorder. 
It's uh, it's a chemical imbalance. You know, the parents are off the hook. You don't have to look at your parenting. You don't have to look at what's happening in the household or anything like that. It's 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 this chemical imbalance in the brain. Uh, the kid, him, him, him or herself is off the hook. There's no emphasis on any personal responsibility or anything. You just have this disease that, that the, the more you talk about the disease socially, the more courageous and the more wise a human being you are. And, and everyone kind of has this alibi. And, and uh, everyone's off the hook in terms of responsibility. And, and what people don't realize, of course, is that they're, they're giving up their own freedoms in, in a sense. And it's it's a uh, a appeal for more state power and and more uh, more of a society r run by experts, you know, through coercion and force. So, uh, but what but we're we're you know to to to, to put a, put a critical uh, positioning inwards too, you know, we not meaning specifically you and I in, in isolation, but 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 we are guilty of contributing to this this madness. I'll say madness in quotation marks. Uh, ourselves in the NLP and hypnosis world in in marketing that idea that it's our techniques that change people or or even letting our clients get away with thinking that you know that hypnotist changed me you know man he he was powerful if you look at the way Bandler you know tells his stories and you know even Bandler uh, especially you know the way he writes his books Yes, there's an emphasis on that people do this themselves, but 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 there's also very much a narrative of powerful bander and how the techniques and how he might hypnotize people and he is the one kind of creating the results. Uh, even I, I think even Erickson and, and Jay Haley, you know, had that thing going on and. and Again, there's a functional trade-off because if, if people strongly believe that you have some sort of power or they have a very external frame of reference, you, you might have to pace it to, to some extent to, to help people change. But what I think at least part of the effort should be to, to moderate that or, if possible, not having people leaving the session going, you know what, hypnosis really worked or, or NLP did this to me. Or Howard or Jurgen is just so smart. They made me change. Mm. It's ego gratifying for sure. But in many ways, I think it, it really, <laughs> here's a funny part. You know, a lot of clients, at least for me, you know, will come in and say, look, I have these and these feelings inside. And they're a re reaction to that in the world. So because people out there have expectations towards me, I'm anxious. Because people drive slow in traffic, I'm angry. You know, uh, my mother drives me nuts type of things. Hmm. That whole mindset, that whole mindset of thinking that our experience is directly caused by objects and, you know, situations out there is, of course, flawed. It looks that way to most people. It's a psychological illusion. But, but that psychological illusion in and of itself is largely what's contributing to a lot of their misery. Now, if they leave our office and we help them, you know, their particular issue is gone, but they leave convinced that the hypnotist changed me and 
the hypnosis changed me. I like thinking, okay, we've helped the person, but we've helped reinforce the 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 psychological illusion that's driving a lot of their their issues to begin with. There's an element here of you may have won the uh, the war, uh, but you you didn't win the battle. Yeah. You know, you help with whatever presenting issue, but actually they they, they may have left off worse off ultimately with a disempowering uh, reinforcement, which is which is fascinating, I think, for everyone to be aware of. To be be pragmatic, you know, I I realize that, you know, sometimes you have to pace people's reality. But one thing that I've done quite a bit, if, if, if I sense that people have a very external frame of reference, is that I've I've done hypnotic phenomena with them, you know. Uh, hand sticks to the wall, you know, name amnesia, stuff like that. And, and when people really respond, you know, and, and they're blown away by that, and, and they think I did it to them, man, you know, nothing paces their reality more than that because their mother made them feel bad, but I, in quotation marks, made their hand stick to a wall. That's damn more impressive. Now, if if I then can say, now let's do a thought experiment, and I give them the same instructions, but but I orient them to either question the experience or attend to it in a different way, they suddenly realize that I can give the same instructions, but they can suddenly have a very different internal experience. Mm-hmm. And and they, they discover empirically at a felt level that, you know, I can choose to have a stuck hand or not, even if Jurgen is doing the same stuff. I'm actually, well, he's helping me, but I'm actually creating this experience on the inside myself. To pace and lead in that way can be damn powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a powerful bridge to help them realize, oh my God, that's what I'm doing with my so-called social anxiety. Th- this is a thought-generated experience that I'm running on the inside. You know, Can I choose to have this or not? And, and then we can, oftentimes the insight in of itself is enough. But then we might tweak it or help them relate to what's going on in a different way. So, so th- there are powerful, you know, paces and leads to be able to, to help people make discoveries that their, their emotional life is not a cause and effect, stimulus response, reaction to whatever is going on out there. There's something that also came up in, in, in the book that I wanted to bring you back to which was, I think, actually just a very refreshing message to people. You know, someone can know consciously and rationally that probably people aren't getting 100% success rates with every single person that they work with. But it's rare to find someone in a, talking about change work in a book who's on the cutting edge, who's out there as a, as a leading peer in this, who's openly saying, well, hey, guess what? I did some stuff with this guy, and uh, guess what? I didn't get a result. You know what? People have, uh, yeah... Uh... Because if you look at the narrative of, of, I would say, almost all books produced in in the NLP and hypnosis world, you know, they're often quite perfectionistic, and 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 when there's any negativity at place, you know, it's it's very often the story of oh, my life used to suck, but then yeah. I learned NLP, and now it's great all the time. You know, it's 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 very often that type of narrative. So, so I wanted to write a more, actually John Grender inspired me to write the book because I was, I was kind of complaining about, you know, how so many of these books were so politically correct and not really honest. 
And he said, you know, you have so many great client stories, you know, you should write a book. And I thought to myself, well, instead of bitching and complaining about this stuff, you know, maybe I should put some work in myself. So I, I created the book that I wanted to read, essentially. Hmm. And, uh, and, um, and I, I, I think I told you this story. Uh, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm mistaken when we first spoke, but I, I had a huge insight one day. I, I can't remember exactly what the topic was. It was some sort of neurological disease, but I was helping the person with the pain. Yeah. And, and there was a, a either 10 or 15% reduction in the person's subjective experience of, of suffering. And that's all we ever got. And, and I considered it a failure. And the person looked at me and said, no, 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 no. This is the difference between a, a life worth living and one I wanted to end. And I, I never, and that really touched me. It was a huge, like huge insight because throughout so much of my, my trainings, you know, it, it's, well, you either get the result, you know, is the phobia gone? Is it, and it never occurred to me that, you know, 10% production or, or alteration of something might be the difference that makes a difference between what people, you know, think they can manage and have a meaningful life out of and, and, and not. And, uh, I, I, I think, I think that's, that's really important too. And, you know, I, I used to have, I, I knew John Grinder for, for five or six years, pretty close. You know, we, we had a, a kind of informal mentorship in a sense. Hmm. Um, and people have sometimes asked me, you know, what did you pick up from John? You know, having spend so much time communicating with him. And of course, it's it's a lot of stuff. He's a very wise, very skilled, knowledgeable human being. But for me, the thing that stands out is to watch him fall on his face <laughs> several times, to, to watch him not get results with clients. That was the most liberating. And, and here's the thing. Even at the time, I I had given myself permission to not get get results. Uh, I knew, of course, intellectually that, of, of course, he must not always get results with clients. But but to see it and and to witness it and, and to discover that, yep, even him, you know, sometimes people sometimes people don't hear anything. They, they don't see anything new. They don't change. They don't resonate. Hmm. And that indirectly, I'm saying gave me, of course, I gave me, but 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 that indirectly strengthen that notion that you know what it's okay it doesn't have to be perfect you know that's life you know sometimes people don't move sometimes people change uh dramatically that was the most that was the most um empowering thing at a at a felt level and um so whenever i have students you know i'm i'm you know, doing my best to 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 be a, a warts and all person. You know, you know, meaning to be completely upfront and say, "Look, I've had many clients throughout the years who who haven't changed, who who haven't resonated. I I've had plenty of clients who who made that 15 percent shift. Hmm. I've had people make improvements. I I've had people defy the odds I've, I've i've had of course plenty of people you know make the changes that they're looking for but but uh and i think this goes goes down to the, the teaching structure in many seminars as in 
you know, you, you do a NLP master prac, for example, it's like, okay, here's a demo of a technique, go do it once. Do you have any questions? Let's move on. You know, you just do that over time. Yeah. And, and I, I think it, it's really unfortunate because on the one hand, of course, the, the, the trainers are actively scanning for the right demo subjects and who can blame them? If you're discover if you're teaching anchoring, you want someone who can really easily access states. Of course you do, because then people can really see the nonverbals. They can see the state shift. They, they can see the magic happen when you do those collapsed anchors or whatever. If you're going to do hypnotic phenomena, you're looking for a good hypnotic subject. Of course you are. So who can blame them? But what ends up happening very often is that, is that the trainers know how to scan for the good subjects. They get good demos on stage. They look like geniuses. Mm -hmm. And... The, the the students then very easily go off thinking that's how it looks every time and that's how it should be. And if it isn't quite that way in the real world every time, well, it's just my lack of congruence or or that I'm not, per se, good enough. You know, the trainer would have been able to do so. And what they might not know is that, no, many of the sessions on stage could have looked very different had they chosen different subjects to work with. And B, you know, I appreciate that people have to demonstrate what they're actually teaching. But what students often, not always, but often don't see is the trainer struggle, is the trainer troubleshoot, improvise, uh, get an outcome or not get an outcome anyway. And those are the valuable uh, things. So when I've done some seminars in the UK, we used to have this this thing that no one else was doing, I think, where we would have this forum before the training, mm -hmm. and then we would have this forum after the training for a few months where the people who I did change work with would report what the actual changes were or were not in the world, and the participants could see how I followed things up. Because I, I got into this pesky habit that for some reason no one else seemed to be doing, when I went to seminars, I, I would make a point of talking to demo subjects on stage, get their email, get their phone number, and I'd call them like three months later and say, hey, this is Jurgen from the seminar. You know, how did stuff go? And I would discover quite often that what everyone thought of as a smashing success on stage very often wasn't. Yep. And I would discover that I was the only guy who called them and that unless you by you knew them or by accident met them at a seminar and asked them you'd never know so you, you have all these like impressive demonstrations on stage that a lot of people just take for granted that's change work that's how it works that's how it lo should look every time and very few people are like investigating and, and contacting the people and saying look what actually happened here you know what's your experience and, and i think we're, we're like collectively suffering as a field Yep. For, for, for that lack of scrutiny. Well, it's funny. I, I remember speaking to someone, I can't remember who it was now, and they said something that I couldn't relate to, which is, you know, as a hypnotist, they see someone, and then they send them away, and if they don't hear from the person again, they assumed it worked. Yeah. And I didn't relate to that because for me, I, maybe it was that I was hard on myself, I just assumed it didn't work. <laughs> like, yeah. they, you know, because I thought, what if it worked? Why weren't they ringing me to tell me how excited they were? This is great. So um, certainly personally, I, I wanted to, to speak to people after and I wanted to follow up only for my own peace of mind to know.
Yeah, uh, I for think, sure. You know, I, I think both both assumptions are unwarranted. Like, 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 uh, if someone doesn't get back to you, I, I think it can be just as likely that, yep, I'm happy, <laughs> no reason to call, yep. or I'm partially happy, I just forgot to call, you know, or, or I'm really unhappy about it, but I see no reason in calling or creating a conflict or whatever it might be, so, so screw it. I, I think all of those are equally possible options. Well, I came across a few people and they'd, they'd ring me and they'd say, hey, guess what? Can you help me? And I said, well, how did you get my details? And they'd say, well, you helped my friend two years ago with such and such a thing. And, you know, they, they changed really positively. And yeah, I look yeah. back at my notes and I go, oh, they never contacted me back. I was trying yes. to I was trying to find out how they were. And they, oh, yep. no. And then you, yep. and you think, you know, they've been great for two years. It would have been nice to know. So I, I do. I do. You know, I think it's important to get good feedback so that we know when it is or isn't successful. Yeah. Here, here's a funny thing too to, to throw in. You know, uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, the, the importance of, of expectations. You know, I, I know some hypnosis schools teach their students that if if someone calls saying, can you help me with X, you're supposed to say, yes, that's easy. We do it all the time, you know, to to, to kind of build that positive expectation. Mm. But but I think there's a functional trade off here, too. Uh that you know, sometimes people change despite expectations. Sometimes they they have expectations and they don't change. Like it's it's not the only it's not the only game in town. And one thing I discovered, I don't know how this matches up with your experience, but one thing I discovered was, you know, if I work with someone and, and they've made dramatic changes, and, and and now their sister calls or some family member or friend saying, "You help my friend. I want that for myself," and you helped her in. In you know one session, and that's what I want. Or how long will it take? That you know, conventional thinking would often say, "Damn, that's an ideal client." You know, she has good expectations. Yeah. But but in my experience, I've found it very useful to to step back with those people and say, "Look, yeah, I'll 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 work with you." And my experience is that the people who do the best. Or the people who come in are willing to roll roll up their sleeves, get to work, really get engaged, and they're not that concerned with how quick it will happen. Those are usually the people who change really fast and get their you know one session miracles, not the people who call in and order a one session miracle, yeah. because because you're not your sister, meaning meaning it's not a surgery. You as a client bring capacities and resources to the to the table your level of commitment your your thinking styles your ability to concentrate uh there the, the, there are many other factors these things plus how well you and i resonate and what i bring to the table these elements will combine to produce whatever outcome it will be you know and and the people who get the great results are the people usually who are willing to roll up their sleeves and to do the work? Is that you? You know, so I, so I, I kind of throw the tables back at them instead of being uh, the passive person looking for the hypnotist or the hypnosis to change them. Mm. I kind of reverse the frame and look. You know, you bring stuff to the table. Are you willing to do the work? And, and that's that's sometimes because sometimes the the family member, you know, as I said, or the friend, 
doesn't necessarily have that level of commitment or, or that level of concentration or, 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 or you know, the, 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 same, the same capacities, so to speak. I think it's really interesting as well hearing again this theme of passivity coming through and uh, and and you're right what you're suggesting does match my experience in terms of expectations when people have said you know hey guess what you work with successfully with my sister for example it's uh, counterintuitively it doesn't always end up being the ideal client and and hearing how you frame that is is fascinating if people like what you're saying they they want to find out more about the work you do where can they go? How can they get in touch? They can go to provocativehypnosis.com. That's my uh, that's my English website. Mm-hmm. And I also have a vlog on YouTube called the Provocative Hypnosis Channel, where uh, I, I put up you know quite a bit of content uh, for for those who are interested. Fantastic. Well, as, as mentioned to you, we will uh, put the links on the rapidchange.works website under the episode and they will appear on iTunes as well. Is there anything when we talked you know, a couple of weeks ago initially about you doing the podcast that you thought I would ask or that you thought would be useful to bring up? But actually, I haven't asked directly. You, 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 t- you talked about a rapid change, I think, you know, mm. examples of like really rapid change. It's the first thing that 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 came to mind in some of these other interviews that I listened to, mm. and and uh, yeah, I, I'd like to make a really quick point of course. on that because people are often so skeptical of of change. You know, can people really change in one or two sessions? And what I've discovered is that I've discovered so many people changing before the session, just with the <laughs> right framing on the phone. I love that. that. That you know, j- just asking people good questions, just building a good expect- expectancy, having a good rapport with them, getting them to commit to actually do some tasks that that challenge their notions or builds up some skills. Uh, very often, people make solid changes before they step into my office, and in some cases, completely resolve their issue. I, I had. Like I, I had this client uh, uh, a few years ago who had, well, she was never my client. I mean, she, she never ended up in my office, but she had had this this huge phobic response in her own shower and pretty much trashed it. So this, mm-hmm. and, and we spoke on the phone, and I asked her some questions. And I, I could notice something kind of clicking. You know, I can't remember what, what I said or asked, but but she had some sort of insight during the conversation. And uh, she she called me two days before our scheduled session, and I, I had been abroad, you know, so it took like three hours for her to get the session with me. And she said, "Look, I don't need the session. Something happened during that phone call, and and in the next couple of weeks, the the, the change just spontaneously manifested." Uh, and I've had many instances like that. I remember when I had my old office, you know, I, I worked with this guy for some anxiety issues and. A few years later, he, he kind of started re, you know, having them again. Hmm. And he, he called for an appointment, and he actually came on the wrong day. So I was out shoveling snow. And and then the day after, he said, I, I don't think I need that session. You know, just seeing you was enough. Like, I was just this anchor. I just reminded him that change was possible. And since then, he changed again. Oh, here's a fun one. 
there, there's there's this uh, agents of change hypnotist who who has this podcast who recently watched a vlog I have on my channel on how to fix your own allergy. Yeah, and 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 he reported that that he had watched that and something had happened and and he had the suspicion since that was the only thing he had done that there was a relationship most likely between watching that particular vlog and. I don't know, was it either a reduction or, or elimination of those allergic symptoms? I'll be honest, that sounds that sounds too far fetched. Yeah. That sounds lewd. that sounds like you're making things up now, Jorgen. That's outrageous. <laughs> um, in case the listeners uh, <laughs> are, are wondering what this laughter is about, it, 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 the agent of change that had this happen was me, and I did. I watched the the uh, you had a, a really interesting vlog on allergies. And I've been I've suffered uh, for many years with with hay fever, and uh, I watched this. I didn't even think anything was happening. Uh, I just thought it was really interesting. I was thinking about allergies in a different way. Um, and a few days later, a friend of mine came over, and his eyes were like streaming and red, and you know, sniffing and sneezing. And he went, "Oh, Howard, how are you coping? The 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 pollen's terrible today." And I I hadn't noticed. I just went, is it? Really? <laughs> and it was at that moment when I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because normally I'm pretty sensitive to that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, certainly that, that that's one of the weirder things that I've experienced. And I, I think the evidence or, you know, would point that there was something happened at that moment. So uh, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's 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 not that uncommon. Uh, and I think it's it's called the the uh, the, the, the video camera guy phenomenon at uh you know, some hypnosis and NLP trainings where, where you know, you, you have people in the back of the room kind of filming mm -hmm. and, and sometimes spontaneously making changes as they watch other people make changes, sometimes even changes they didn't intend to make. Yeah. And uh, and I, I, I know that that, uh, you know, Steve Andreas made this comment once that, that that some people had watched this allergy DVD thing where people had changed their allergies and, and they got feedback that just viewers of the dvd had changed their own allergies unconsciously just by watching it not even really intending to do it or or knowing they had done it so so you you, you never know uh but but i thought that was a cool a cool example of it, rapid change it is cool <laughs> and part of me said in my head i thought well why don't i say to people let's let's put it on the website let's put a link to the allergy you know and invite people to watch it but then this little voice went yeah but then they'll expect it to work and then we'll right. get into that whole paradox of expectations. So, yep. um, look, I, you're going to have to tell you, I, I've really enjoyed chatting to you and, uh, and ex Same exploring here. all of this stuff with you. And, um, yeah, I hope at some point it would be great to, to bring you back and, and let's do this again uh, and explore you know, a whole heap more thoughts as well. So on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. 